0: For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will good, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen
1: Cool, it's good to be home. It's really good to be home. I've missed you guys. um I hear like things have been going super um super good um, the author of the psalm is David, right and um David is just known to be like these incredibly incredibly godly man but if, if you're listen to the words on the screen and the words that Keith read to you there's all of this angst in this so the last time we were um, together we were like uh, looked at Psalm 139 right and we said like what what do you do when it's time to move forward just when it's time to move forward and and these Psalms that David and these other songwriters, because their songs wrote. It's just kind of funny. They should have learned Station, right, like back in those days. And they they speak to these issues of the heart. And so I'm going to be honest, for years, I just was like, I don't really like the Psalms. They're kind of depressing, sad. And then I went through a really hard time, and all of a sudden, I connected with them, and I found encouragement and instruction and everything else. And then I found out all of them weren't sad. They just maybe, maybe I wasn't a poet. I have no idea. But I've been going back... um, and just taking a look at them, and it's so funny to me because I think that like, just like when it's that time, when it's just time to move forward, you can almost hear like, you know, Jesus knew these psalms. I don't know if you realize that, but all the psalms we're looking at, he quoted in the New Testament. She's almost hearing singing these words, right, over us in those times. And so um, this, today what I want to do is look at Psalm 51. And um, for me, it's just kind of like, hey, Doug, at your worst moment. Like, so Psalm 51 is kind of like, you know, just at your absolute worst moment. And when David wrote this psalm, um, it was one of his worst moments. So he was, he, he had uh, really committed a heinous sin, and he was really paying for it. And, and so it just made me think, you know, like, what is my worst moment? Like, you know, what is my worst moment? I know, I don't want to be, be a bummer today, but just, like, th- think in your mind, like, you know, are you in your worst moment, or what's your worst moment, but... I know that I've had them. Um, like uh, when panic just fills your mind and heart, you can't sleep anymore. Um, when you're broken hearted, destroyed, depressed. Ever had that moment where you're in the middle of that moment you're like, we're just never going to recover from this. And I don't mean financially, I'm just talking, I'm taking our worst moment, right? Like we're just never, ever, ever getting out of this. Why did he leave me? Why did she leave me? Uh, gosh, will they ever stop hating me or hating on me? Um, how about the client at work? It's just the plague. And they just put you down, or the boss, or this, that. But it's that, that moment, lights come on, and you just kind of say to yourself, like, this, this is just the worst moment ever. It's just funny, because those are not objective moments, right? Psychologically, those are never objective moments, because you could probably find another worst moment, and in our brains, we know there's probably going to need another moment that trumps this moment. Or, or maybe not, right? But we hope not. But objectively, Objectivity just goes out the window. Your worst moment, my worst moment, are always these subjective moments where just in that moment there's no good, there's nothing, you know. So those worst moments a lot of times happen to us. You know, they're brought to us by other people or circumstances. And, and so for me, that doesn't really qualify as my worst moment. My worst moment is when I have um, caused the issue, when I have sinned. Does that make sense? And, and it's, it gets even worse in that moment when I realize not only did I cause it, but I knew I was going to cause it. Like, you know, that you did the thing you know you shouldn't do. You, you had the fight you know you shouldn't have. You... You said the thing, and you knew when you were saying it, you shouldn't say it, or you made the decision about work, and, and it, I want to say it backfired, but it didn't really backfire. I just knew it was wrong from the beginning when you made that choice to do that with some and say so-and-so or to go to this place or whatever, and all of a sudden, I'm in this moment that is a worse moment already because the consequences and the experience are just terrible, but it's now my worst moment because I realize it's on me. Like, I own it. And so that's kind of the way that I define, for me, my worst moment. It's not just a bad moment, you know, but it's the worst ever moment because I have to own it. I mean, it's, it's tough enough when you're facing trial. And so when you take that and you kind of look at that in light of this psalm, you know, David's sitting in his worst moment because he's realized, I did this. We're going to take a look at it in a minute. But I wanna give you just maybe a glimmer of hope in all this. The coolest thing about having your worst moment when you're just convicted and you know that you walked yourself right into all of this is is that you're convicted. Like the fact that you are convicted tells you that this worst moment can lead to better moments. Like this is not the end of your story yet. Could you imagine if God pulled his spirit away from you and all of a sudden, there was no conviction. There was, no, there was none of that. And then you were just all alone. So I, I know none of us are going to be in those bad moments. We don't want to be a worse moment when it's on us. But the one beauty is that I'm being convicted and, and that my conscience, my conviction is this gift from God that I realize if I handle this well and I respond to that conviction well, this could be the beginning of my next great moment. And so I just want to take a few minutes and look at how David handled this in Psalm 51. And like, it's just, it's kind of really, really cool. All right, so his worst moment, right, is he walks up to the edge of the balcony one day because he's king. Everybody's off at war. And I know people teach us like, see, he should have been at war. I don't know if the king's always supposed to be at war. I don't know these things. <laughs> And, I I mean, I know there's some, some things where, like, maybe he should have been there. But, I mean, ultimately, if we could just pull away everything that we think and just get down to brass tacks. He walked up to the edge of the balcony, just probably looking out over the city, right? And he looks down, and he sees a really pretty girl taking a bath. And you're like, why was she outside? Because they didn't have bathrooms, okay? So it was a bucket bath. If you've been in Mission Field, it's just a bucket bath. So she's out there, beautiful. She's behind the wall of her house. Nobody can see her. But he's looking down over the balcony. He looks down, and he sees her, and he's like, hmm. And before you judge him, uh, guys are guys, girls are girls, whatever. You can just look, and, and you go, oh, surprise. The point is, it's not that first look. That's just like, Normal like instinct to go ooh, ooh la la or whatever it is, but it's the fact that he looked back, and then the fact that he called her to his house, that he slept with her, got her pregnant, got caught, didn't want everything to be ashamed, so he was going to fake marry her, you know, and so he sends her husband to the front lines because he is king, and where he knows he's going to kill, killed, and he does get killed, and then she moves in with David, he takes her as his wife, okay. And then this guy named Nathan comes to him. His prophet, it would have been this this consultant psych, right? Get it? Who's filled with the Holy Spirit, prophet of God. And Nathan's, can I talk to you? And this is what he said. David, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. He used to eat the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a trouble with the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock and herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's like, See, David doesn't know this is a story yet. Are you clear? He doesn't know it's a story yet. He's king. And he says this. My, his anger is great. Kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives. <laughs> you can hear it, right? The man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. <laughs> and then Nathan turns to David and said, you are the man. This is the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, wives' arms, gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that were too little, I would add to it as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now that, is the worst moment. You get it? So it's not just bad enough that maybe you're living with the consequences of your stuff, but then all of a sudden, you're faced with the fact that you are the one who caused it, and you are absolutely wrong. It's right in your face, and there's no choice but to own it. Can't even imagine being David like that. Actually, I can, because there's been times when a human, a friend of mine said, and there's been many times when the Holy Spirit said, what'd you do? And those are my worst moments. You know, because sometimes when that person leaves us, it is on us. And sometimes when our boss is punishing us, it's on us. And sometimes when our friendships are starting to fail, it's on us. And sometimes, you get it. That's a worst moment. But David's story, if you look down through the years, doesn't end there. He, he recovers. And so what I want to do is just say, look in Psalm fifty one, it's really cool because he talks about how he faced his sin, how he recovered from his sin, and then the result. So let's take a look. Here's the first thing he did. He accepted that he was wrong. In Psalm fifty-one, three it says this: For I know my transgressions and my sin is before me. So what is that? It's got I'm owning it. This is mine. I'm no longer denying it, making excuses. I'm not hiding, no more people getting sent to the front lines to cover this. I know my, and you're like, okay, well, that seems pretty obvious, Doug. Well, it is. The very first step is acceptance. But then he does this. He, he also realizes that it, it's just a little bit deeper than the fact that he led her into sin. It's a little deeper than the fact that he sent the husband off to be murdered. It's just a little deeper. He realizes this, and it, it's really cool to me, so he doesn't just feel bad about what he did and how they did. He realizes that his sin is actually against God. In Psalm 51.4, he says this, against you, he's talking to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is wrong in your sight. So it's not just I see what I did and the consequence and I, I realize it's on me. I'm convicted and I'm confessing. But I really realize that ultimately the person I, by doing this stuff that was wrong, the person I really sinned against is you because I said I would follow you and I said I loved you. And so he did his love for God wrong, his love for his people wrong. You get it. So that's like two. He knew that God wanted him to live a better life. He knew this. And so he knew his big error was that he did not follow God. We should get this. A lot of times we just stop with the disaster that happened. And we don't realize that if we own it and it's on us, the real error is that we didn't follow God somewhere before that moment. So the real solution is to, to follow him. So <laughs> like all of us, David sees the sin, realizes he's offended God, and the third thing he does is he asks for mercy. Psalm 51 one says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Now, I like this. He's like calling in markers. <laughs> He's like, God has said he, he will always turn his heart back to those who, who ask for forgiveness, who come back to him. And so David isn't just, I love David's wisdom. I mean, I don't think he's playing a game with God. I think he's just saying the truth, which is like, you know, God, have mercy on me. You get what mercy is, right? Grace is getting, okay, well, just getting something like that we just don't deserve, right? Strength and favor from God. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So he's like, dude, undo this, God, according to your steadfast love. In other words, I know that you're bigger and better than this and me. According to your steadfast mercies, blot out my transgressions. So David asked God to spare him, right? And, and it's crazy that now that he's realized his greatest sin was against God, right, and he goes to God and he says, I need mercy. I need you to blot out my transgressions. Now he realizes this third step, and, or the fourth step, it says he's got he's to get back to God. So he's got this pathway back to God and he figures it out and it's genius. I don't know if he figured it out, he knew it intuitively, but it's great for us. He figures out that the very next step is to what? To return to God. I got to go back to following God. Psalm 51, too, he says this, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. So what's he relying on? God. So I, I, not only do I just see my sin and I grieve sin before you and I realize that and I want mercy, but he says, he says what? He says, I need you to wash me. And there's this interesting thing because he realizes the entry back to God, the return to God is the solution. But the only one who can anoint that return, the only one who can really make that happen is the same one who started the relationship and that would be God. There's this, this verse in the New Testament. I can't remember where it's out right now. I was talking to someone the other day. I need to go back and just look it up to refresh my brain. But it says that the love of Christ continues to save us. I know we think of salvation as this. One-time moment thing, and what it says, he continues to pray for us that we would be saved. In other words, it's this salvation: I'm being saved from temptation, I'm being saved from trial, I'm being saved from trouble, I'm being saved in these worst moments, and that's what David's saying. Your steadfast love and this relationship is bigger; than this endures. Please have mercy on me. But he doesn't think like, well, I can go do this and I could go do that. What he says is, hey, God, will you wash me thoroughly? So, verse seven says, "Wash me, and I'll be whiter than so, snow." 14, here it is again, deliver me from my blood guiltiness, oh God, if you don't know old school words, it just means being really bad, oh God, oh God of my salvation, so he knows he was saved before, God is his salvation, but he's saying, I I need you to bring me back to you, I need you to clean me up, don't just have mercy on me, you know, but fix me kind of, and really that's the next thing he asks for he asked for one more thing. He doesn't just ask for mercy and forgiveness and being cleaned up. He says in verses 10 and 11, fix me. I love this. this. is a lifetime verse for me. I love this. Heard it when I first got saved. A guy sang in a song. His name was Keith Green, and it was called Creating Me a Clean Heart. This is a song. It's just right out here. Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. What's he saying? So don't just, what, have mercy on me, and don't just, what, you know, forgive me, and don't just, what, wash me up, But actually fix me, create in me a clean heart, oh God. Like David gets, I can't do that. And renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence. You hear that? He's like, please do not. I know I have blown it. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Fix me. Restore me to the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So you can hear his cry, right? He said, restore me, God, and, and renew me, God, and connect me. Like, bring me back in. I need to be connected to you, you know? Because clearly I got disconnected. David wants his joy back. He wants to get back to the place where he was abiding with God. His worst moment, right? He realizes There's nothing he can do physically that's enough. He writes this in verses 16 to 17. You will not delight in a sacrifice or I would give it to you. What he's saying is there is no sacrifice I can make. Now, they did animal sacrifices, monetary sacrifices, food sacrifices, all kinds of things that God prescribed to deal with sin and thankfulness and asking for forgiveness and grace. They did all these things. And what he said is there's just nothing. Even as a king, as rich as I am, there's nothing I can do that I can sacrifice, nothing I could do that is big enough to solve this. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, and I put in parentheses, the sacrifice God really wants. The sacrifice God really wants is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. In other words, I I am aware. You, You see the steps. He sums it all up. I accept my responsibility. I realize my sin is really against God. I beg for mercy because I know that I deserve death. I ask you to draw me back and connect me and fix me. That humble, that's what contrite means. I know I'm wrong. No more bickering. Ultimate conviction, conviction from God. Like we said at the beginning, we often see that conviction is like, oh, my worst moment, really? But it's actually a beautiful sign because if you respond well to conviction, you actually head to your next best day instead of your worst moment. So here's David's quick prescription. uh, would be this. Own your worst moment. Ask for mercy. Offer your brokenness. Ask for forgiveness. And then ask to be restored or fixed. And it's kind of cool. So I wanted to tell you another quick story because I, I really want you to realize like David's not the only one who did this. And when I first became a Christian, I memorized the book of 1 Peter. But I studied about Peter, and I learned about Peter. And if you don't know who Peter was, Peter was a follower of Christ, like one of the original, you know, go, I'll make you fishers of Ben, right? So three years, he walks around with Jesus, and... Um, His worst moment that he experienced was right before Christ was going to be, you know, crucified and then resurrected, give his life for us. All the songs today were just awesomeness. Like they just matched exactly what we're talking about, right? He gave his life. So right before he's getting ready to give his life, uh, Jesus said to Peter, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. In other words, it's just gonna be a tough day. I'm going to the cross. And Peter's like, I'll never turn coat on you. I'm here. But whenever somebody says to you, I'll never leave you, just start the clock. Unless you're married or something. Have hope then. But like people come to the church and they're like, this is the best church ever, I'll never leave it. And I just go like click, you know. <laughs> yeah. Because if you're saying that to me, there's a reason, right? So um um so but anyway, so so Peter's like, no, no. and Jesus is like, oh, you you will. And, Jesus, and then Peter replied, he was like, no way, I'll die with you, I am a snap." blah, blah, blah. So they take Jesus away, in the classic story, they come to arrest him, Peter's all standing up for him, and all bravado, and they take him away, and then there's little details about the story that I don't think, maybe I forget, but when it, but I just, it came to mind, I was reading it, I don't know if you noticed this, but like, Peter follows Jesus everywhere, so they take him into the court of like, where are the people who are, you know, the legal people going to judge him and the Jews and all? And it's actually, we say court. It's not like a courtroom. It's like a courtyard in front of the building. And it's, and there's, it's open. You can see in it. And they're built a fire. And they have Jesus arrested there. And all the proceedings are starting to start. And, and somebody comes out and goes, like, don't you know him? And he's like, oh, no. And they come out again. I like, no, no. But the third time just blew my mind. I never noticed this until I read it this time, and I don't know why, I just love God's word this way. Peter's there, and somebody comes out and says, do you know him? And Peter says this, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed. Listen to this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter through the gate. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. And I'm like, worst moment. I, I know you guys are more genius than me, but I've just never noticed that. And Jesus turned and looked. Can you imagine? I do you to think of the last nasty thing you did. Right? And then Jesus cracks the door open and goes, peekaboo. This had to be like the ultimate, told you. Peter, is devastated and goes out and weeps bitterly. I love that they recorded that. But if you fast forward through the Bible, you see that Peter did the exact same things, even though he didn't know David, the exact same things that, that David did. He, he was broken. He realized he was wrong. He was broken. He was convicted. And then he repents. He turns. He, he fixes his ways. In fact, the next time he sees Jesus, it, it's on a beach and he sees Jesus. He jumps out of his fishing boat and swims to shore. Like, he can't wait to be back to Jesus. And the cool thing about the story is that Jesus couldn't wait for him to be back with him. He was not mad. This is exactly what happened in Psalm 51. Jesus' steadfast love for Peter could extend that forgiveness, could fix the relationship. That's just who Jesus is. That's who God is. God is always, please listen to me wherever you're at, and if you're on video or whatever, he is always ready to extend mercy and forgiveness and grace. He is always there to reconnect you, to fix you, to restore you, to creating you a clean heart. He is so, it's so amazing to me. He's so ready to bring a work of restoration that when he does that, in both of these cases, something magical happens. Two authors um, wrote these two things. I just had to share with you. There's incredible truths. Bob Goth, who's a really neat Christian guy, wrote this. When Jesus wrote, rose from the dead, he didn't make a speech to the world. He made breakfast for his friends. He's referring to that moment of Peter on the beach that now that he appears and he's back, he sits. And Peter swims to him and they actually cook this meal. And Jesus gives him three opportunities to affirm his love for him. And he does. Jesus couldn't wait for him to be back. The same thing happens with David. Uh, Sam Alberry says this, there is more forgiveness in Jesus than there is failure in us. I think it would just be really great for us to really get this, what David got about God and his steadfast love, okay? And, and what Peter got about Jesus' steadfast love and ability is this. God is not in the disconnecting, destroying business. God is in the come be with me business. He is always waiting. You have to push God way out there even before he'll begin to discipline you but when you respond to that discipline if it happens like it did with David and you go worst moment he is there but he's not just there there because for David and for Peter this was not the end of their story so he's on the beach he gives Peter the ability to what to do what to affirm his love three times. If you know the story, Jesus basically goes, "Hey Peter, do you love me?" And Peter's like, "I love you!" And he's like, "Feed my sheep." He gives him. He's you know, just talking to him. But the point is, is that he, he asked him three times. There's a lot of speculation on why he did, but just Jesus asked him three times. Three times he's yes. He's like, "This ain't gonna happen again." So I'm, I'm not gonna be cocky. And go, I'll be. I'm just gonna say I love you. But but when he did that, Jesus immediately invited Peter to go in the mission field with him. He didn't just take him back. He didn't just have mercy and forgiveness and restore him. He invited him to come be a part of what he was doing. And Peter did. And we know this. It's changed our lives forever. But if it's interesting, the same thing happened with David. He tells us about it in Psalm 51, verses 14 and 15. David says this, what? Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, right? Oh, God. Oh, God of my salvation. And... My tongue will sing of your what? Yeah, a lot of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. And if you look now further into David's life, what is David doing? It's exactly what David does the rest of his life. And he becomes a more peaceful man. And he he, he already proclaimed God, but he continues to proclaim God. And God uses him. So in this horrible moment, I mean, how do you get free of being a murderer, much less an adulterer, much less a denier? But in both cases, God hears them, recognizes their true brokenness. That's the offering he wants. He restores them, fixes them, and then invites them. How cool is that? So I have no idea where you guys are at today, whether you're having one of those worst moments that you walked into. But if you are, just remember that, right? Jesus wants to have breakfast with you, not to visit you in jail. He's not trying to lock you up. And that whole Sam Albury one, that there's more forgiveness in Jesus than there's sin. I mean, that's incredible. But maybe you aren't in a worse moment and you just need to prepare. So what I want to do is this. I just want to remind you. If you find yourself in your worst moment, that moment, when it's falling apart and you're responsible. It is not the end of your story. It doesn't have to be the end of your story. You can take these four steps. Number one, embrace your brokenness. Just own this. And just be broken. Be convicted. And know that that conviction is a gift from God. It's a gift from God that can get you going back on your best day. Two, Ask God for mercy, forgiveness, and restoration. And don't ask Him like you're going to do something for it. Ask Him the way you did at salvation when you realized there was nothing you could do. There was not a big enough sacrifice you could make to make this right. Embrace your brokenness. Ask God for mercy, forgiveness, restoration. And then do this. Just like David and Peter, reaffirm your love for Him. <laughs> And let him do the same. Now, this is powerful. Please listen to me. I am really good at reaffirming my love for Jesus and then beating myself up for another 10 years. Anybody else? You need to let him affirm his love. Let him make you breakfast. Let him say, we're done, David. And then you need to get up and go back and be king. You need to get up and go back and be the missionary. You need to get back up and get up and get back at it. You do not need to live in shame. There's no sense in asking a God with endless mercy and grace and forgiveness to restore you if you are going to just wallow in it. Accept his love. And when your heart, it's not gonna be your heart because he lives there. When your mind or the enemy reminds you of what you did, just remind him of what his future is gonna be and move on. Fix it. So embrace your brokenness. Ask God for mercy, forgiveness, restoration. Affirm your love for him. Reaffirm it and let him reaffirm his love for you. And then just live out loud. Accept his invitation. How powerful is it to be forgiven and then to sit at the break room and somebody's like, hey, what happened this week? And you're like, I gotta be honest, I totally screwed up. Then I was beating myself up. But like last Tuesday, God and I had a conversation and as embarrassed as I am about this behavior, he told me it's good. You got to move forward and just let them look at you like crazy people. You never know. I think we think that people don't uh, want God. And I know we need to just deliver the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that he loves and forgives and he saves. But I wonder what happen if we started telling our raw stories our raw because David did. It's recorded in a song. My gosh, it's written in the history books, all of the details of his messy affair and murder. Peter's horrible things there. Why? It's the inspired word of God. Why did God write all of this instead of just the flowery stuff? Because we don't do this from pulpits and stuff. We don't stand up and go, I, man, blew it. But all the Bible through there, God is just transparent. And if it weren't for David's transparency and Peter's, the rest of us would never know how to get anywhere. The gospel is not just limited to the fact that Jesus loves you, died to save you, will forgive you, and get you in heaven. That is the good news. But that's not all the good news. The good news is what he's continued to do in my life as he continues to save me, as I continue to grow up, and as he continues to set me free from shame and problems and reaches out to me in my worst moment if I will, what, embrace brokenness? right? Ask for mercy. Get it? If I'll take these steps, I become restored. What would happen if we began to tell these stories in the hallways? Just to be honest, how was your weekend? Yeah, terrible, man. I, uh, I slept with my neighbor's wife, and then I had to murder her husband, and I mean, that's raw. Dude's like, oh, I thought I was the only one. How'd you get out of it? I got to go do, you know, 20 years in <laughs> our system today. We're not king. You're not getting out of the murder. But you get it? Like, what would happen if somebody was like, you know, what is your weekend like? And you're like, I got to be honest, man. I threw, a, I threw a frying pan at my husband. And you, and, <laughs> your girlfriend's like, what? <laughs> but we made it right. Like, what would happen if we showed people how our faith is really changing? You don't have to have facade. just be people. Invite people to a place in your home or here into a relationship with somebody who would just be like, just honest. Where everybody comes in is, is, is family and when they're ready to talk, they can talk. What if we pass this on? So maybe not just if our worst moment was turned and moves us towards our next best moment, but could be used for somebody else's next best moment? You know, something I've learned is this. When we're truly broken, we will share our stories. You know, sometimes that brokenness comes from outside. Let's be honest. We're not responsible for everything. Those are bad moments. But even if it's your worst moment where you are culpable, brokenness gets us to a place where, even though it's painful to talk about, we can and will. Because the restoration story is incredible. So, you know, we say here we want you to find God, you know, and discover freedom. You know, really don't want you living the way I did so long, in captivity to the things that I did wrong. And here's God. David doesn't want that, Peter. So what do you do in your worst moment? You have to do these four things. And then live out loud. Is there just a time to move on? that makes sense? Let me tell you a quick story. So you guys know I was in Hawaii this week, and everybody's like, oh, you got to go to Hawaii. I worked all week and had the worst plane flights I've had in a long time. Um, I almost, it, w- it was so bad that I almost asked to leave the plane before they shut the door. That's before he took off. But I spent the week with yet another church. I keep finding them bit by bit that reminded me of this place. In fact, they may even be better at this than we are. These people treated me like family from the moment I got there, even though I was leading them to something. It was just an incredibly cool place. And, and for those of you who don't know, my car caught on fire and blew up, froze up. They have like a bunch of terms. What it means is, hey, that car you've been taking care of for seven and a half years, perfectly and paid off and you could put another five years on it Uh, yeah yeah. well Hyundai put a bad part in it and it died and they're not going to do anything about it so in Amber was awake when I was asleep you know it's really weirdo opposite and so she would do research send it to me I would do we're doing all this research we're coming back and so just in casual conversation these guys heard the car blow then somebody asked and one guy was a mechanic and we're talking everything else and this old guy named Jim he's an introvert, super quiet the whole time day day two sitting over here and he said, um, hey, Doug, this is like, I'm like in the middle of workshop, just on a break. We're just standing and a coffee for 10 minutes before we pick back up. And he said, you need to let that car go. I was like, what? He's like, we all get it. You love the car. You took care of the car. You did everything. But you got to let that car go. It's gone. And I was just like, Jim, you're awesome, and I don't like you. And we went back. <laughs> and, and so for the rest of the other day and a half we still had, um, it's funny because it became one of those funny things that kept coming up. So people were talking about, but this is so different. It's not like small groups, you know, disciples groups. And somebody said, you need to let that group go. It just became this thing. And I guess what I'd like to say is if, if you have a thing that's like the car and you're just grieving over it, It's your worst moment. It's time to let that car go. Do what you got to do and get a new ride. Got it? Love y'all.